This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto a rain-soaked, humid, somewhat sticky, but we're not complaining, Wednesday morning on Locust Walk. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, all my buddies and Wharton Moneyball collaborators, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Good morning, fellows. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Going fine, going fine. Going to be here going to be here for the next two hours some combination of us are here every wednesday morning eight to ten eastern you can join us you can be here too give us a ring 1844 wharton that's 1844-942-7866 you can also email us especially if you're listening one of the times we're replayed four or five times this week will be replayed if it's not eight to ten eastern it's not live but you can still reach us email is business radio at SiriusXM.com, business radio at SiriusXM.com. There's another way you can get us Twitter these days, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our Twitter account. We follow all of our guests. We talk about sports analytics over the course of the week. You can add us there. You can send us questions. You can send us suggestions for the over-under segment we close our show with. Throw things at us that way if you'd like, at WMoneyBall. We have... A little bit of a different schedule today. We've got two guests. One's going to slide in here in, in about 15 minutes. We're going to get a short segment with Phil Savage talking about the NFL draft. And then at the 9 o'clock hour, going to going to do another guest, Reese Davis, college game day host Reese Davis, among other things, is going to join us again to talk NFL draft at the top of the next hour. Between then, before then, after then, open lines. You guys can give us a ring. I'm curious what these guys are thinking about, talking about. What has caught your eye around the world of sports, guys? Well, I want to hear about the game last night, Eric. Yeah, so I was fortunate. Were you at the game, I guess? I was. You were. Yeah, so, the well, game being? The Sixers the game. Sixers. Yeah, yeah, the Sixers Heat game. Um, a couple were there of, other games played last night? Is there, there, there were. There were baseball games, games there, last and night. There was we can talk about those. There were two other basketball <laughs> games last night, too. Um, yeah, so a couple things struck my eye about the game last night. Um, the first thing is that the Sixers are, I saw, and then I, I'll tell you a little bit of calculations I did around this. The Sixers are the only team in the Eastern Conference that won 4-1. to one. They won 4-1. All the other ones are either, two, there's two of them that are 2-2, and then of course Boston just took a 3-2 lead last night. So then I started to think to myself, okay. How likely is this? How likely no, is of this? Of course. So then I started to do the following calculation. So let's imagine you say that a team has a two-thirds chance, the favorite, has a two-thirds chance to win a game. So just the math that I did for everybody here on Morton Moneyball, let, what are the chances that a team that has a two-thirds chance to win, the favorite, would go two and two? Well, here's the way you do the math. If you believe the games are independent, let's take the sequence win-win-loss-loss, which gets to two-two. Two-thirds times two-thirds times one-third times one-third. That's four out of 81. Now, people say, well, that's not very likely. But yeah, but the thing is, there are six different ways it can happen. So the, there are six sequences that all lead to 2-2. Two, two. So you have to multiply that by six, and you end up getting a number that's about 30%. So what's interesting to me is that one-third of the time, 
if the favorite is a two-thirds favorite... Which is actually a fairly big favorite. Well, let me get... Although in basketball, well, <laughs> maybe I, not. But by the way, just so, just so our listeners can, can uh, assess how big a favorite that is, that corresponds to a five-point favorite for each right. game. If it was eight-and-a-half-point spread, which was 80%, wh- by the way, I, I'm asking you just what's your gut feeling? Let's say the team that's the favorite is an 80% favorite to win a game. What percentage of the time do you think it goes to 2-2? Just by statistics. If you take 0.8 times 0.8 times 0.2 times 0.2 and then multiply it by 4, choose 2, which is 6. Probably about 10 to 15%. I would say more like 20, but I yeah. mean... Well, you guys are both... It's 15%. Okay. Do you really think... That if a team has an 80% chance of winning, I understand that. So what's, I mean, something seems wrong to me. Like if I told you a team was an 80% chance to win, you would bet me before the series started that there'd be a 1 in 6 chance roughly that this thing would go to 2-2 at .8.2? I guess that's the mathematics. Isn't no, that no, nice? it is. The, <laughs> I, I, I that's guess why I haven't really ever talked about it. I'm talking to you about it. I'm yeah. asking you, do no, you I, think and, it's plausible <clears throat> that... 80, that one-sixth of the time that it's an 80-20. So now this is what we do. How do you, yeah, I, there's I, a lot of I, ways I've to com- do it. No, I mean, no, but I'm saying I've complimented you every week here on Morton Moneyball, especially I'll the last it. four or five <laughs> He's weeks. He's very sensitive, too, so please I know, keep doing that. I know, that. I'm going to. Who's talking. I'm going to. But my point is, so if if I don't believe the number, yeah. then what's wrong with it? Is it because there could be non-stationarity? Uh, it could be that... I believe it's 80-20, and maybe that's not true, so my prior belief is wrong. It could be that they're not independent events, which, as you know, I believe in momentum. You know, I believe in non-independence. And so... Is Which this because historically you've observed more two-two yes. series? No, less. In, in situations, less. 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 I think that number one sixth is too high. If I told ah, you, okay, if I, I see where told you're you that Golden State. By the way, that's about roughly right. Golden State was a nine-point favorite in most of the games they played against San Antonio. That corresponds to an 80% win percentage, which corresponds to a one-sixth of the time, if those two teams played, it should lead to a 2-2 outcome at the end of four games. I think that's way over. I didn't check. I believe it's way over empirically what we would observe. Well, I don't think we actually have that many... Team, games and series with teams with that much of an advantage. The Golden NBA State we might some, actually. I well, mean, we could take. I mean, I the first rounds first of NBA round. series. I mean, that's a pretty big historical data set now, I, where actually, you might have a lot way, of. 80 I feel to 20. so happy because most of the time, and this isn't a criticism. Most of the time, when I say something, Shane appropriately, he's our. You never have enough sample size guy. Yeah. This is one of the few times I've said something. Well, we've it's actually funny because actually I, we have enough this sample size. We have enough sample size. I'm actually wondering whether we do. I mean, this is. I don't know the answer to this, but I think that. That Golden State is a is a uniquely exceptional team, and I think they hover around the eighty percent mark. I think it drops down pretty quickly um, from that. Oh and no, you're right. Like matter of fact, the other thing I had to do to do my calculation, of course, was since I had to convert, I had to look at point spreads, and I had to you know use convert conversion, in, convert it to odds yeah. of winning. I agree with you. Eighty percent is about a nine point spread in basketball, which That's by the way frequent. is not that frequent. But even then, I was just commenting. You asked me what caught my eye. Why I was I love the Sixers. They won four to one. I was thrilled. Why are all these other series at two two? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna harken uh, back to our first season on the air when we were just I was just getting oriented to all the ins and outs and intricacies of, of all the different sports. And when I mean different, I mean other than baseball. Um, and if we remember, there was all these series that took place in basketball that all went seven games, and they all were won by the favorite. 
And, and I remember there was that remarking, one, I, thinking this is insane. We played seven games for to know exactly what we knew before we started. Yeah, and it was t- game after game. And same, so if I recall, there's a, it seems to be an abundance of games of series going to seven games that seemed to be won by the, the team that was expected to win in the first place. I don't know whether that's true or not, or just a in that a, particular. I remember that particular playoff year. It seemed like every so, series went to seven games, but in the end, it went. And just to, to, and and just to finish this thought, since Kate asked, what caught my eye on sports. So let's forget that Boston won last night just for a second, just for the argument, because they were also a 2-2. Do you have no preference? There's three series in the East that were, forget last night for just a second, that were a 2-2. Cleveland, Indiana, Boston, Milwaukee, Toronto, Washington. Cleveland went loss, win, loss, win. The other two went win, win, loss, loss. I just want to check with you. Do you have no preference? Would you? Do you believe the odds of winning the series is identical sitting at 2-2, because I know a lot of our fans here at Wharton Moneyball are wondering this. Is there any signal in loss-win-loss-win versus win-win-loss-loss? There has to be sub-signal in there. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be something that's going to be significant or whatever, but again, empirically, because... Do you have any sense which way it goes? I would not like to be the most team that most recently lost two games. Yep. Right, I mean, I mean, because that could you may have because of momentum, well, or an injury. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, non-stationary in a lot of different ways. It's a great, it's a great, because it's a great opportunity to distinguish momentum from a more general non-stationarity. So momentum means something, at least in the common parlance. And non-stationarity is a more general thing that we think may or may not be because of the psychological notion of momentum. I mean, look, teams adapt strategies more. Fundamentally, more yes. structurally, injuries happen. Yeah, yeah. It turns out in none of these series has any injury happened since the start of the series, at least that we know of. The way I view it, and this is maybe just it's maybe bad statistics, but it's the way I think about it. In both times that Cleveland was down in the series and they had to win the game, they won the game. In other words, they were down one nothing. You can't go down two nothing at home. They were down two one. You can't go down three one. They won the game. So to me, is there any signal in that? I no. think we, well, or am I just telling single, a story here? You're, you're that, telling a story about LeBron James, which we all believe. Yes, I mean, that, so right. it's not that it's so 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 unfathomable. But what I think is, um, you know, interesting about this idea about you ask us whether we want to believe in momentum or we don't, and there's really two issues here. I think I've always been a stalwart that there isn't enough data that the momentum effect, if it exists, is not big enough to make its way through the noise of or lots as and lots Kate of games. said, possibly even distinguish it from non-stationarity. So, but then you ask another question, which is, if you had to pick between the two, which one would you do? There's a different question between having enough proof for something and then having to make a decision. And this is something that, that always happens in statistics. Once you learn about the concept of statistical significance, you stop realizing that sometimes data that isn't statistically significant still has information that you could use. And that's something that happens all the time. Well, that's a fundamental difference between Bayesians and frequentists, right? I mean, Even if you're not a Bayesian, you still have, I mean, so I, 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 know, you, I know you should be, but, but, but historically, frequentists have said, hey, if it's not significant, it's not worth paying attention to, which I, is crazy. I'm not sure that's so. I, plenty of people, well, plenty of people do approach it that way. Well, that's I, how the scientific world has taken frequentist methods. Which and, is and unfortunate. Kind of interpreted them that right. like, you know, we've, we've kind of given them, we've kind of given them this principled line in the sand. Yeah. When really historically we made up a line in the sand. Right. I just, just again, I was just codified. you asked me what caught my eye. What caught my eye in the Sixer game was that, and Eric, also hold on, hold on. That isn't couldn't be what caught your eye. You're sat through a playoff. I mean, there was a well, game. I, was, I was going to get to my <laughs> other point. Is that um, I watched it? No, no. Come I, on, this is a, congratulations. This is, a, this is a terrific day. What was also I noticed in the game is. <laughs> 
Um, when you have two great players, and the Sixers have two great players in in um, Cup, in uh, Embiid and Simmons, two great players, all of a sudden, four what I would call good players become look like they're all pros. I mean, Dario Saric, Marco Bellinelli, JJ Redick, JJ and Robin Redick Covington like an shooter. are wide open yeah. on every play because they play with Simmons and Embiid. You know, it, it just you play like it just reminded me of you know remind me of the great golden days of the Chicago Bulls. You guys may not remember this. They had a guy a guard on the Chicago Bulls, B.J. Armstrong. Never heard of him. Well, he played. Come he, on, he won three championships <laughs> with the Bulls, and he was averaging fifteen, sixteen points a game. Got a big contract, left the Bulls. Never averaged more than five points a game. People said, "Oh my God, what happened?" I'm like. I'll tell you what happened. He's not playing with Michael Jordan <laughs> yeah, and Scottie Pippen you. anymore. Yeah. All of a sudden, B.J. Armstrong can be covered. actually can cover like, him now. Like yeah. the eighth best defender is yeah. no longer on B.J. Armstrong. I was watching. So you asked me really what caught my eye last night, Cade. I couldn't believe how open the Sixers shooters were. And because when, you know, when they're covered by the third, fourth, fifth best defender, because you have to pay attention to Simmons and Embiid, it just changes the so, whole so game. So tell me what you thought about the the fourth quarter. I, I turned in, I tuned in at the at the half, the end of the half, and I watched the whole second half of the game. And the, it began with the the Sixers having a, a substantial lead, and in the fourth quarter they just seemed to fall apart. They couldn't make a shot, and it lasted for about s- seven or eight minutes. Yes, it did. They and scored looked, everything from the foul line. Were, they did everything. Were, were you nervous? I mean, at, there was a t- how about at, that ten point run when their lead went from eighteen to eight? Yeah. So and I, what was your take on that on on that extended stretch of just missing everything? Is yep. that just the vagaries of chance, or was there something else? Good question. So the one thing I'll say, Cade brings up point. It got down to eight, and Johnson, James Johnson on Miami. I mean, I'm not saying Wait. I could make it. I wouldn't under this pressure. But, I mean, he had a wide-open three. There was no one within five feet of him. And the whole crowd was like, if this ball goes in, they're down five, right. and there's six minutes left, and we may lose this game. And he missed it, and then, matter of fact, he then made, he was so angry he missed it, he created an intentional foul intentional in the next foul, play, yeah. and we ended up getting three free throws because he also got a technical. So, so it literally think, went from five to 11, yeah. though, in a 10 second span. I, I wasn't connecting the two. So you Six think he was, swing. that was angry. acting out in front I saw it. I've never seen I saw someone it. do what he, he did was, on the basketball court. I understand before. that. He was so frustrated that he missed that three that you could see him running down the court saying, I'm going you know, to hit somebody was, on this it was, play. It I, was basically like a hockey. He, 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 he treated was. it as if yeah. he was on the hockey ice. He was. He took out two guys on the play. And it was, either way, if you're asking me, I think what happened was the Miami Heat actually are not a horrible defensive team. Oh. And in that five-minute stretch... It's not like the Sixers were missing easy shots. They were missing extraordinarily difficult yep. shots. But it also made me feel good about the team because the Sixers' defense didn't waver in that five-minute right. stretch. It's not like Miami was then all of a sudden just you know running scoring, down the court. Running down the court. I, I have another question for you. I, th- when I tuned in, there was a, one of the uh, Miami um, shooters had, was in the process of missing two fee, uh, two free throws. And we got a free missed... frosty, by the way. I'm going to Wendy's today, by the way. Just so all of you know, well, that's the, everybody knows that's what happens at the Sixer game, right? Is if it the important? No. Team... Is it important to use that little gift they gave you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm that... going to Wendy's right. and getting well, my frosty. Well, well, my son jumped into my arms. My 12 year old son jumped into my arms and said, what "Dad, happened? we're Explain. going to Wendy's." So I, I was just going to. What I observed was this one player missing. He missed two free throws, and I believe over the game he missed something like. 
the vast majority of the free throws that he took. That's correct. And I, it harkens back to this this uh, this this uh, um, essay I read about about free throws and how simple it is to do to learn if you really want to be committed to shooting ninety percent free throws. You throw underhand and you can do it. That'd be great. And and nobody does it. And you get these horrible players. This costs them the game. There's a whole Malcolm Gladwell yeah. podcast mm-hmm. about that. Did you just mention? That I, I did. It's, 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 it, it predates that. He he did a great job he telling did, that story. He did a nice job on it. This is Wharton Moneyball, of course. We're here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton We are here at the halfway point of the first quarter. Going to jump into a conversation with our first guest. We are delighted to welcome to the show Phil Savage. Phil is a former GM in the NFL, also director of player personnel, director of college scouting. He's actually been on the coaching staffs as well. He's now known as a great follower and analyst of college football. He runs the Senior Bowl, which plays an important role in the assessment and acquisition of, of college talent. We'll hear more about that. Phil, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. We're doing real well and glad to have you with us. We understand you're going you're gonna to be running your own NFL uh, draft show on SiriusXM. You've got Radio Channel 88, of course, is where they can catch you. You're live today through Friday, 11 Eastern, doing round-the-clock coverage of the NFL draft. So you can catch Phil, Channel 8 here on SiriusXM, 11 a.m. this morning, tomorrow morning, and Friday morning. Is that right, Phil? Yes, that's correct. Uh, I'll be with Bruce Murray on our Blitz show, which is the middle of the day uh, program. We'll be live out at the NFL Experience, which is the, the fan interaction uh, activities that take place out at AT&T Stadium where the draft will be held uh, tomorrow night through Saturday. But, yeah, Channel 88, wall-to-wall coverage, every pick. Uh, will be analyzed starting Thursday night all the way through Saturday afternoon. I think it's 256 draft picks, and all of us will have commentary on each selection that's made on, uh, here this upcoming weekend. Well, you know more than most people do because of how closely you follow it, and we're curious to hear uh, what you make of a few candidates. But before we drop into that, can you tell us what role the Senior Bowl plays. I think many people are under the mistaken assumption it's you know it's a it's a television product. It's mostly just to put more college football on the air. It does that, but it also plays a key role in the way NFL teams assess players. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that happens at the Senior Bowl? Yeah, of course. Uh, the Senior Bowl has a long tradition. Uh, this next year, twenty nineteen, will be the seventieth game. Amazing. And what has really happened is that. Uh, it's a contest that has evolved. It is at one time was known as the premier college all-star game, and that's probably still true, but it has morphed into more of a pre-draft event, and mm-hmm. we've fashioned ourselves as sort of the first leg of the triple crown of the draft, meaning that it's the Reese's Senior Bowl in January, it's the Combine at the end of February, and then each individual player has their own pro day, and so those are kind of the three uh, events leading into the draft tomorrow night that take place. And uh, the Senior Bowl, again, all 32 teams are there. We This year we had the, the Texans and the Broncos with the two coaching staffs. That is one of the real draws for players who want to come there because not only are they competing against some of the best players in the country at their respective positions and across the line of scrimmage, but also they get a chance to connect with 32 future employers. Right. And that that availability and that opportunity to get in front of these teams in advance of the combine 
uh, has obviously helped a lot of players over the years raise their draft stock. So, Phil, one thing that's different about that leg that you just described, at the, at the Combine and then on Pro Days, they're not going against competition. At the Senior Bowl, not only are they going against competition, they're going against the best competition in college, and, they all, and the competition also has big incentives to do well. So it's the only chance for the staff, after the, se- the staffs, NFL staffs, after the season is over, to go in and see players in that kind of live environment. I suspect you guys have constructed that week over time to maximize that. Can you tell us something about how do you get NFL staffs a look at that com- competitive situation? Yeah, well, first of all, on the field, uh, we had three practices on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and those practices really try to focus in on the one-on-one. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, say, for an example, let's just pick uh, Rashawn. Let's, let's pick uh, Darius Leonard from South Carolina State, okay? That's an FCS-level school. He shows up in Mobile. And when the Tennessee Titans put a profile tape together on Darius Leonard for their head coach and general manager to watch this spring, it's going to include uh, plays from his regular season. It's going to include the one-on-ones from the recent senior bowl when he goes against running backs and tight ends. Then it's going to include his combine workout and perhaps if his pro day was safe. So those one-on-ones are extremely important for these players, and it's something that we try to emphasize to the staff that, hey, when they build out their practice schedule, yeah, we have to play a game on Saturday, but make sure that there's ample time for players to get a lot of reps in the one-on-one situations. And so that's really the highlight of the week on the field. Off the field, the players get an opportunity to get in front of all 32 teams, typically at night. Uh, post-practice, uh, it's all sort of structured. And, again, all 32 teams have a chance to talk to all 110 players. And then as an organization ourselves, we try to give the players a bit of a, a picture of what it's really going to be required of them as a pro athlete. We try to give them some assistance in, in with the media and their interviews. So we bring in a media coach for that. We also have had financial education uh, over the course of the week. And then on Friday, the day before the game, we have Athletes for Hope from Washington, D.C. come in and talk about philanthropy and how they can get connected to their community once they get into the league. Because really, yes, it's the most important thing is your production on the field. But the truth of it is you've got to learn how to manage the media, handle your money, and then obviously give back to others because you're going to be in such a prominent position uh, wherever you're drafted. Phil, that's interesting. I didn't know that it was as geared toward developing the players as well. That's neat. Nice contribution. From the from the team's side, obviously this assessment is one of the most important things they do over the course of a year and also historically challenging. So wh- you've been in the front offices of multiple teams. You were you were with the Ravens. You were with the Browns. You were with the Eagles. In fact, you were a general manager of the Browns for multiple years. What, what have you seen – change over time how are teams going about these assessments differently than they used to how are they getting better if if they are getting better yeah i would definitely say that you know 20 years ago when i was with the ravens from 96 to 04 there were there were certain organizations and clubs i would say two-thirds of the league did a really good job in scouting and a third of the league probably lagged behind i would say now so in other words we oftentimes we get players that were overlooked or just underdrafted or uh, under-evaluated or what have you, just find a gift. You know, an Ed Reed uh, falling to us at, at pick 24, as an example, in, in 2002. Uh, 
you know, Terrell Suggs, who's still playing, you know, falls right. to number 10 right. uh, in 2003 for the Baltimore Ravens. But I don't know that you see that happen as much anymore because I think there's been an investment in scouting. You know, when I first came to the league in 1991, we had about 12 coaches and probably a half dozen scouts. Now most of the teams have upwards of 20 coaches and probably 15 to 20 people working in personnel all the time. You add the element of the analytics and the numbers to support what maybe the old-school scouts are seeing, and now you have more of a complete picture. There aren't as many sleepers. Social media has opened it up where instead of just Mel Kuyper Jr. on ESPN and maybe Mike Mayock on NFL Network, there's literally hundreds of people that have their own mock drafts, their own evaluations. And right. so there really aren't a lot of secrets out there anymore. And uh, I think it's probably a little bit more difficult uh, to find a player that's overlooked. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's probably elevated the overall approach of all 32 teams, quite honestly. That, that makes a lot of sense. But, but how does a team get an edge in that environment? How does one team do better in the draft than another team? You know, I think uh, your approach, your systematic approach, going all the way back to last summer, uh, summer in terms of, you know, how your, your scouts are going to be positioned and stationed across the country, uh, what schools they're getting to, the information that you're getting in the fall, how that's ultimately interpreted and translated to the spring. Uh, I, I would say the, the, the teams that are sort of scrambling around here in the last month in terms of you know, all the private workouts and those sorts of things, uh, yes, that's important. But it still goes back. I still think at the heart of scouting, it goes back to what you saw during football season. You mentioned our right. recent senior bowl game. You know, we always tell the players, look, this is an opportunity to make a first impression because it's the first time you've actually sat in front of these teams and they're going to put a face and a personality with a name and statistics. But it's also a chance to make a lasting person uh, impression because it's the last time you'll be in a football uniform in this process leading up to the draft. Right. So I think that the teams that focus on football and not necessarily the numbers still have a better chance of getting it right. If the numbers can support it, all the better. But the truth of it is that there are a lot of players really good in the fall that have a, about an injury or maybe they can test as well or what have you. Those are going to be the guys that are the value picks in the second, third, fourth round. They're a bit overlooked that the wise teams will ultimately take uh, this weekend. Phil, we, we, love that, we love that line of thinking here. Can you give us a player that we should keep our eye on that you think shows really well on tape that may be underrated because his numbers, his measurables, weren't quite what the teams would hope for? You know, I'm going to give you a guy three players that were not even invited to the combine. All right. Ultimately, we're in our game. How about Justin Watson from right there at the University of Penn? You bet. He's a Quaker. 40, cat, 40 straight games with catches. He's 6'2 and 5'8, 213 pounds, ran 4'4'4, four, 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 had 286 catches in his career, 33 touchdowns. I think he's a mid round pick and a contributor almost right away as a bigger slot. That's a lot. Trayvon Henderson okay. here from Hawaii. He's a player that accumulated over almost 300 tackles in his career, nine interceptions. Again, was not at the combine. In our game, he had 10 tackles. He covered more ground, 5,303 yards, than any player that was in our contest. So, you know, he's aggressive. He's a run support player. I think he'll be a third-day choice and probably end up making a team. And then 
from from our backyard from South Alabama, we have Jeremy Reeves. He's a safety slash corner slash nickel and dime defensive back. Doesn't have great measurables, but he has a nose for the football. He's a Sun Belt Defensive Player of the Year. But those are three players that were not at the combine. We know that 35 players annually on average that were not in Indianapolis ultimately get drafted. I think those are three names that we'll hear on Saturday uh, in the fourth through the seventh round. That's great. Um, a lot of fun. We, we actually went out to Watson's Pro Day. It was, it was great to see him compete out there, and he does, he does look the part. There's no question about that. We got it. We can't. We can't let you off the hook without asking about the quarterbacks. This is a, you know, it's always fun. It's kind of a cottage industry to talk about quarterbacks this time of year. But this year, more so than usual, you have to go back to '83 to talk about a first round that looks the way this first round looks. Everyone's got a different theory. There are, of course, now storylines about each of these guys. Can Can you give us your take on on the quarterbacks, Phil? Yeah, I, I think going back to last. Uh, last June when I, I have an occasion to visit the Manning Passing Academy each June, and, and that sort of begins the journey towards the, the next year's Reese's Senior Bowl. And, you know, if you didn't know, it's just dropped into Thibodeau, Louisiana from Mars and didn't know anything about any of these quarterbacks. There were about 40 of them that were there working out that day. It, it would take you about five minutes pick Josh Allen out Mm -hmm. as the guy that has the most ability. Mm -hmm. Uh, In saying that, I think that this is a group that honestly is a bit overhyped. I think they're a bit uh, overrated. However, because there's such a need in the National Football League to find that panacea, that answer to this uh, never-ending question, who is your franchise quarterback, we're likely to have four of them go off the board, certainly within the top 10 or 11 picks. Mm-hmm. Now, the Browns are picking number one. They have Tyrod Taylor, who they traded for from the Buffalo Bills, as sort of a placeholder for 2019. They say that they're not going to play a rookie quarterback uh, in so many words this year. With that being said, that incubation time is going to be important for whoever they pick, whether it's Sam, Sam Donald or Josh Allen. But I do think those are one of the two names that will be taken. To me, if you evaluate these quarterbacks on where they're going to be perhaps in 18 months, then Josh Allen has the most upside potential. But there is a risk in that because he's the, the least statistically impressive of these four guys at the top. Right. Uh, nevertheless, you know Baker Mayfield is going to be in this mix. Josh Rosen from UCLA is going to be in this mix. Uh, but at the end of the day, the quandary for the Cleveland Browns, in my estimation, is the fact that as an organization, they traded away from Carson Wentz two years ago. They traded away from Deshaun Watson last year. Again, as an organization, not this current regime, but now John Dorsey, the general manager, is almost forced right. to take one of these quarterbacks who I don't think is as good as the two guys they passed on over the last year as the number one overall choice. So right. it's really a difficult, complicated uh, position to be in, at least in my opinion. Yeah, great. That's a, that's a helpful analysis, and you're pointing out that it's not strictly about football at this point, given their history. There's some politics there. Phil, we, we're going to have to let you go, but one last question, very important question. How many more national championships from your man, Nick Saban? Well, they're going to be in the hunt again this year. We had a day on Saturday, and people were worried about, you know, they're going to have maybe nine defensive players drafted oh, over God. the next three days. That's just not fair. It was it was as if none of them left. I mean, 
their defensive line dominated, linebackers running all over the field, the corners are covering the receivers. I, I mean, it's just amazing the job that they do there, not only recruiting, but then developing players. And, yeah, they're going to be in the hunt again, uh, no question about it, over the next few years. And, of course, this quarterback situation for them is going to have to resolve itself between Jalen Hurts and Tua Tonga-Valoa. But as long as Nick Saban's in the building, uh, they're going to be right there near the top of the SEC. And if you're at the top of the SEC, that means that you're well, we just we just wrapped up with Phil Savage, I believe. Phil, thanks for the time there. Phil is former general manager in the NFL, also former director of player personnel, college scouting. He's been had a long career there. He is the host on SiriusXM Blitz of their NFL draft coverage beginning at 11 o'clock today, Channel 88. You can catch Phil talking about the NFL draft today, tomorrow, Friday. They're going to be talking about it on NFL Blitz, Channel 88 at 11 a.m. Appreciated Phil being on the show to talk. NFL Draft with us. That is the first quarter of our show. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew this morning, Eric Adi Shane. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Seriously, give us a question. Matt Dots. Matty Dats, sitting by, ready for your phone calls. You can also email him. Matt will take an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or throw him, a, throw him an at on, on Twitter. We're at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow our guests. We tweet about sports analytics. We take your questions. You want to reach out to us that way, at, at WMoneyBall. Just off the phone with Phil Savage, a short guest segment. With the notorious Phil Savage, a, a, a NFL draft connoisseur, longtime uh, NFL front office exec, now running the Senior Bowl, which plays a key role. It really does play a key role in the way teams evaluate college football prospects, pro football prospects. What did you guys make of that conversation? It's quick, but it was pretty good, huh? Yeah, so, you know, this was actually one of the things that caught my eye. I'm glad you asked Phil that question because, you know, people say there's a lot of uncertainty in the draft, which there is. There's no Mm -hmm. doubt about it. But if I list the following six names, what do you think are the chances that they aren't the top six? Because the point I'm trying to raise is, yeah, I don't know exactly what order it's going to be, but there is pretty much general consensus around these are the top six or seven players. So one would argue... That's uncertainty, but there's not that much uncertainty. I, f- I feel like there's uh, often a surprise, even in the top well, six. Well, I was going to ask you, so, let's, so um, let me list the six names yeah, I listed. Because we always go in with some sort right, of consensus, Right, so let me list right? the six I've listed, okay, and you can yeah, tell me if yeah. you disagree. So I've got Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold, Saquon Barkley, I think Jonathan Nelson, which we could debate, and Bradley Chubb. Are those not the top six? I, I wasn't big enough attention to the well, I mean, I Yes, expecting. there's uncertainty. Well, the offensive linemen, the, the, the number one offensive lineman. One of those. Draft. You've got four quarterbacks, and you've got. I didn't Barclay. actually. Li- I didn't actually list Baker Mayfield. That's what I'm saying. You're not. leaving somebody off. Yeah. I, I could list Mayfield and say, "What's the chances this is the top? So you think seven. Nelson is very likely to go before Mayfield? Is what you're saying? I, yes, I, I do. Okay, that's interesting. No, no, but I'm asking you though. Let's. Well, I mean, let's I mean obviously, May- obviously, we've already seized upon one part in which this is not necessarily a consensus <laughs> going in, right? Right, exactly. Is Nelson the guard? Yes. You can't take a guard in the top six. You certainly can. Oh, you can. It's a pretty important position. 
I don't know. This, that guy's if, you, supposed, if you don't that, need a quarterback, this guy's supposed have to be a, a generational. But that was supposed to be a ten-year starter. No, but that's no the, risk. I get right, it. So I get it. But. No, no. But that's the question I was going to ask: is that especially if you're a team, let's say like the Cleveland Browns, where you say to yourself, "All right, so we're, let's imagine you draft Allen and Saquon Barkley." Right. Well. Who's going to protect them and create holes in the actual running game? So you could easily imagine a situation where they may actually trade. I could see a scenario where they actually trade down. But I'd say uncertainty. Yeah, there's uncertainty. You don't know. I don't know who's going to be number one. But aren't you fairly confident who the top five, six, seven guys are? I mean, I have a good idea what's going to happen. But there there is enough uncertainty in both terms of like whether the Giants actually pick a quarterback or not. Um, there's enough uncertainty about whether the Browns use trade trade out of their second pick. I mean, I mean, I think the Browns would probably Which is will the take a pick just for yeah, our listeners. Ta- yeah, that's right. So I think the Brown. I, I think there's minimal uncertainty that you know, the Browns take a quarterback well, let me ask with you their a question. first pick. Let me ask Cade. You obviously have written a lot of stuff on the draft. A lot of people say, well, of course the Jets are taking a quarterback. Well, let's imagine. Let's play out a scenario. Imagine the two quarterbacks they like. I'm making it up. Are Josh Allen and Sam Darnold? Imagine they go one and two. The Jets are sitting there at three and saying, you know, S-H-I-T, our two guys are gone. Is there a possibility that all of a sudden, you know, Plan B has to kick in and say, look, we had hoped that we just want one of these two, but we're sitting here at three, but those two are gone now. Yeah. Maybe they don't draft a quarterback. Could Couldn't be. that I, happen too? Could be. It, I, I, I think that I think that absolutely could. Because maybe they're not indifferent between they're, the four quarterbacks. I can quarterbacks. guarantee you they're not indifferent. They're, it's it's it and it's on it's it's too easy for the analysts to sit on the sidelines and say you guys should be indifferent because they're so hard to predict. It's impossible to evaluate these guys, want to fit them into a system, get, get to know them, and remain indifferent. I'm not saying it's necessarily right, but it is but, literally impossible but, to stay. Right, but to me, that's the great uncertainty in the mm-hmm. draft, which is again, I'll just. Just because I'm thinking of the Jets, let's um, will they take? The, in, let's imagine their third favorite quarterback is uh, Josh Rosen. Let's just imagine it is, and he's the only one that's left when it gets them at number three. Do they spend the number three pick in the draft on the third best quarterback on their big board? I'm just questioning. That's why I'm saying to me that could be the uncertainty where the player you wanted, or even the top two you <laughs> right. wanted, and, and we, don't, just we don't know how flat their sort of valuation function is across right. these uh, four quarterback candidates. That's uh, it's true, and that is probably the greatest source of uncertainty. If we knew that, then we'd be and able to ask, come up me, with a better model well, for predicting look, what they would do. Well, okay, let me ask you a question because you work with NFL teams and you've done a lot of analysis on this. How many? How much do NFL teams play out this scenario in their mind, which is let's look at the decision tree and the situation. We only have 10 minutes when we're on the clock. What if, God forbid, our top two quarterbacks are gone yeah, at number yeah. three? Are they prepared for that? I'm I mean, sure they, they play have that, to be, out. right? By like that, the 10th team, probably the number of combinations yeah. are like too, That's why too they, numerate. But, but the third team, yeah, there's not that many. It, yeah. The top teams are certainly working through those kinds of things now. How formally is a different question. They don't tend to be super formal about these kinds of things. One could imagine you really might play everything out. And, I mean, you could be the sixth pick in the draft and play all the combinations yep. out and know exactly what you're going to do. But you can't know for sure what's gonna, what, what could change because teams trade in. So I'm with Shane on even when we think we kind of know, more often than not with the NFL draft, something happens that's unexpected. So let's just say I took – let's just say – all right, let's do the following. Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold, Saquon Barkley, Bradley Chubb. What odds would I have to give you? I'll take those five as being the top five in the draft. What odds? What are the odds that those are exactly, not necessarily in that order, those are the top five players? Allen, Rosen, Darnold, Barkley, and Chubb. Are those the that's top? A, that, you've, now you've tightened it down a little bit better. Yeah. I, I think that's good. 
and I think that's. I think still think there's a shot. Maybe Mayfield, Mayfield, Mayfield in Trump's Wallace. in there. So you wouldn't there's, put it higher than ninety percent, eighty percent. No, that's high. I was going to say. Yeah, no, I was going. I was going to give you like I was going to say like ten, fifteen percent that somebody else get like somebody like Mayfield gets in there. I was going to give more than that. I was okay. gonna, I was going to grant you that. Yeah, that's at least fifty percent. But I would I would have been pretty well short of eighty or ninety. Okay. Okay. All right. That's I'll interesting. Go seventy or something. Um, but another source of uncertainty. I just want to point out. I need to go. I need to go retweet this figure. I ran this figure a few years ago because people better understand now how uncertain the draft is. It, the, the 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 dialogue has gotten more sophisticated over time, but it's still not there. And for a long time, it was a long way from it. People just don't understand how. Yes, there's going to be some great players in this draft, and they're going to be worth a lot more than the than the average players in the draft. But they aren't as tightly associated with the top of the draft as people think. So I just went back and looked at over a 15-year period of time. And at the time, you know, this was 10 years ago probably. So I was looking at 91 through 05. And I just asked, where did the if – you, if you look after the fact and, and established these are the six best players in the draft, you know, according to Pro Bowls, according to how much they're paid when they reach free agency, let's just go identify somewhat objective – very objectively, actually – top six players in the draft and just ask – where were they drafted? And I ran the chart. I'll, we'll retweet it. But if you look at the figure, guys are taken all over the place. And yes, they're largely they're largely in the first round, but they are not largely in the top six. The top six players picked are n- never the top well, this six gets players. Back, once so they this reach gets the league. back to the question. Let's just go back to my Jets example, which this figure would address. Let's even say that the Jets are right in their ordering, and mm-hmm. I'm making it up again. Mm-hmm. Josh Allen is, or Josh Rosen's the third best quarterback in the draft. What are the odds that the third best quarterback, and let's pretend that's true for a second. Let's even imagine they have a perfect crystal ball on how great someone's going to be. Would you rather have the third best quarterback in this draft, which as Phil Savage said is a weak quarterback draft in his view, or would you rather have the top Guard, or would you rather have the top running back who people say is a generational running back? That could be do you draft for need or do you draft for based on pure talent? And I guess I'd be interested of how much of the variation well, that Cade's talking about is because teams saying we need a quarterback, if, if, we're going to take the third best quarterback over the first you, best corner or if, lineman. If, if, or, if you need, or if your friend, if your franchise needs an above average quarterback. How else are you going to get them but the draft? I mean, you're not going to get – it's incredibly rare that you get a, a a good quarterback through free agency. That just doesn't happen because all the good ones get locked up. The draft is really your only shot, realistically, so you have to, to overpay. You have to overpay with your to draft To get position. a good quarterback. Overshot may be overstating it, Shane. Yeah, okay, right. So it, it, it's your main shot to get a good quarterback. And if, and if you can kind of say that, like – you know, whoever Rosen is going to be a good quarterback. Yes, you take him, even if he's not the best quarterback you could have gotten that particular year because you didn't have the number one pick. Adi wants to jump in here and critique yeah, your analysis. I, well, said that I want to. I, wanna, I think it, the point you made was that that uh, there's a lot of top players, top six players who don't fall in the top six, and, no, and that's you, too narrow a point. I'm, I, that's what I ended up saying, but I meant something much more. So what did you? So because if I look at the chart, I mean, you can see that. If you think about it in terms of probability, take any any round. Yeah. Oh, that top that top round is just ten times more likely than the bottom round yeah, to produce no, you're a, right. a top player. You're right, but you're the, you're like you're not the audience for this chart. This is what you would expect based on the NFL draft, but the the way players are talked about, this is not what you expect. They they do not expect that you have to go. Here's one way to think about it: How deep do you have to go in the draft to to get the top six players once they reach the league? 
And you're going to approach this from a much more sophisticated perspective than the average person. But let's consider that question. That's a that's a, that's a tough question. question. I mean, because I would like. I mean, I would. Can we modify it? How, how deep do you have to go to get five of the six? Okay, sure. How deep do you have to go in the draft to get five of the top six players in that draft? Once you've seen them play for 10 years or whatever. Great. Now let's just go through the years real quickly. Well, the top one, we go to 2005. There was someone drafted, let's say, roughly 150th. Right. So you're not who gonna, was the fifth. So you'd have to go. You if have you to go have, to the end for 2005, basically. Yeah. Or no, not the and end. Two, but you have to go to the, like, the fifth round of the draft. 2004 is the same way. 2003, yeah. it, you, you get them all five. In five, the first round. You have to go to the bottom of the first round. Yeah, bottom, bottom of the first, first round. round. And 2002, 2002 is the first round. Middle thing. of the first round. 2001 is late, late second round. Um, I mean, early early second round. 2000, 1999, both first round. 1996, late first round. 97, second round. 96, that looks like what? Third round. Third round. 95, late first round. 94, early second. 93, third round. So 91, second, third, late second. So that's... That's a great you you reshaped it because you didn't want to. I don't want to now lie to you. Yeah. You didn't want to predicate it on the extreme. Yes, but that's a great way to think about it. So we just what did we just do? We went like you know some fifth round, some early seconds, about half of them are last in the first round, mm-hmm. something like that. That I don't if it doesn't if that doesn't surprise you, great. But that's the way we should think about it. That's if you right. want if you want to go, if you if you should know that you have to go relatively deep into the draft later than you'd expect and and wait and Adi, I don't know how much of the draft you've watched before but you should watch it and it's hard to escape the feeling and certainly the way that people talk about it that all these guys are sure things at the top of the draft oh yeah they they <laughs> talk about yeah. them they feel they feel like sure things I mean deep into the first round they they feel like first like, you know what's sure also things. interesting about this chart which I thought you might bring up as well is something you asked Phil Savage about too was and I understand this is a visual it may not be statistically significant it appears actually one could call this the more parity or there's more greater schools if you just look at this chart visually it appears that there's more more recently than there was years ago so maybe and I don't know I'd have to you could do an analysis of this what's happening over time are more people out of the top six coming in later rounds one could I mean there's two theories one could say there's so much uncertainty and analytics and scouting is not working another possibility you could say is back to your point Shane it's a flat maximum matter of fact in college football today hey it could be this guy at Penn. This guy at Penn by the way I looked up his measurables as Phil was talking about do you know this guy ran a sub 4440 the guy from Penn. Yeah. He had, you know, third most bench presses of 225. He had the second highest vertical jump of any player that went to the combine. Like, if he had gone to the combine, <clears throat> he would have been, like, the second or third fastest. So This dude could... sounds like he's in great shape. Can he play football? Well, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. So, but my only point is, and by the way, that's very funny. But my real point is, maybe what we're seeing is, there's just a greater abundance of players today that have the possibility of being a top six player because there's just better programs out there today all over the country. And so that's what, I, when I look at your chart, I was more looking at, is there a pattern over time? Are we seeing something happening over time? So what I think you would need, I think you would need is a tighter correlation between the ultimate quality and where they're drafted, which wouldn't suggest an overall rise in the level as much as it would suggest an improved ability by the teams to, to identify. Yeah. Right. Which okay. there's some hints that they have. No, exactly the you opposite, don't think actually. So? so Michael Lopez, who has a great site called Stats by Lopez, absolutely suggests he's a great follower, by the way. So this is an academic who just has a side gig throwing up great analyses on the NFL. Did I've been doing this informally in talks for years. Just consider 
the correlation between in any given draft, any given year, you can run some kind of correlation between where a player is drafted and what his long-term performance is. Sure. And then you can ask, how does that correlation change over time? And if the league is getting better at identifying players, you would expect that in, that correlation to increase over time. That they that the relation between where they're drafted and how they ultimately perform would strengthen or tighten over time. So it's an easy analysis to do. And my observation is that it's just damn near flat. I've been I've been working. I've been just noticing this for years. Lopez went out and ran it kind of rigorously. And these are rank correlations. Apparently, if you run more traditional correlations, you get well, a slightly stronger. Okay, so I'm, but let me just finish the point. The point is, Lopez runs this and says, over a forty-year period of time, for any round of the draft in the NFL, there's just no improvement over time. And this isn't to say these guys are dolts. This is to say that this is a really hard thing to do. And 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 the term I would use is irreducible uncertainty when it comes to forecasting the ability of a college kid to perform in the NFL, there's only so good you can do. There's a limit to how well we can forecast. Well, I mean, and I believe it. I, I believe that irreverse, uh, ir- irreducible uncertainty story. Um, I would just say, I mean, the kind of numbers, I mean, in these charts are going up to like, you know, 2012, 13, 14. How, for those particular ones, I'm not sure we've seen enough performance yeah, to have, actually buy into like the most fair. recent trends that's right fair. you have to stop at some point can i give you one line? go ahead on it well i was just one thing that, that i want to point out is that the the trends you were looking at were within a round of the draft but you can look here's I, and I, so you really have to aggregate over the whole thing that's fine we can we, look at this he did this this is across sports so across all drafts all positions over the same 45 year period of time and then he compares the improvement across sports it's kind of a proof of concept that it says learning is possible because yep. baseball the correlation between where a player is drafted and where he ultimately performs has over doubled it it more it, it triples complete compa- confounding oh is it complete confounding with what, the college the college experience back in the 1970s is almost all high school players and back now it's it's at least half maybe 60 percent college but you see an increase it's, it's, and that's it's, what you're doing as of, you're getting more and more college players into the graph your forecast ability is much better interesting so that's why so it's just more data for those no, players. yeah yeah you see when you're drafting a 23 year old you know much more about their probability of being successful in the MLB than when you're drafting a 17 year old and as you go from the overwhelming number of players drafted in 1970 who are in the who are in high school to the majority now who are coming from college you're getting okay, a but, reversal. But you're, but you're saying it wasn't some categorical shift. It was just no, it's an a slow, increase. Over time, you've been seeing that Well, then, then we can and just so map that increase exactly on this curve. That's so right. It's a linear and, and I would love to see that. And I think that that's what... But, cause the, but NBA... What about... The NFL has always been college. So you don't have right. that, that right. uh, trend. You see this other thing. Lopez shows this other thing. There's a panel that shows the NHL. Mm-hmm. And Never the NHL, understood NHL. NHL was flat for the first 20, 25 years of his analysis. And then it's a steep increase. Now, you might say, is that enough to be reliable? Maybe that's 10 years. It does years. look it looks, reliable. It looks like it's reliable. Yes. Something, Adi would say, something fundamentally shifted structurally yes. in the, in the right. draft, probably, to increase that correlation from 0.4 to 0.6 over a 10-year period. They changed the number of rounds. Is that right? Yeah. Is so it? How, how would that translate I mean, into I, I this? can't remember when they did this, but... Um, I think they changed the number of rounds. Okay, so if you do that, by the way, what that does is it adds variance, and it adds variance at the end, and then it's much. I mean, because correlation just. Oh, they may have reduced the number of rounds. I'm saying, I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up. (laughs) Well, let's see. Let's see what happens because I think they're. When I see a picture like that, I'm always wondering, did they make a fundamental? Okay, let me let's bring it back to the NFL and not forget the main point that we started on here and that Lopez is emphasizing, and and it is the irreducible uncertainty in the NFL draft. And it's and it's it's sobering. It is sobering to think that given all the additional data we have, 
and all the additional computing power and all the additional people standing on the you know in their mother's basements blogging about this stuff, we're not getting any better at distinguishing the guys who are going to do well in the NFL from the guys who aren't. And it's not to indict anybody. It's just to emphasize it's a it's a very challenging thing to do. It's also it. it look, I think um, it also depends on what your if you like, your objective function is. So at the end of the day, listen to what Phil Savage said. He said, which of these quarterbacks has the highest upside? In his opinion, he said, it's Josh Allen. So if he were drafting for upside, that's who we'd pick. But he also said, there's higher variance and risk associated with him. So that's it. You know, if a team wants to dethrone, if you're in the AFC and you want to dethrone the Patriots, you better bet on extremely high upside. And you know what? Drafting, in some sense, you know, I'm going to pick the one that maximizes the minimum bottom. No, I'm going to pick the most conservative one where the bottom is the highest. That's not going to win you the Super Bowl. You better go for the upside. And so I think that adds to the uncertainty is the teams aren't picking the one with the highest expected value or the one. We're going to pick the safest pick where the bottom of the player's potential is the highest. They're going for a max-max strategy. Well, well, yes and no. In some players, it's on some occasions, yes. And maybe with quarterbacks at the top of the draft. I was yes. referring to quarterbacks like, at the I top mean, of the draft. That's exactly the opposite of what they're saying. Whoever, whichever team drafts Nelson is saying the exact opposite. They're saying this guy can't miss. And they don't care as much about an all-pro. That's all a statement about the floor guard. as opposed that's to... Right. Well, they're also saying his max is high, but they're also saying yeah, his but, min is high. But a guard is... It, that's a, you're, plug, you're avoiding a problem with a good guard. You're not I maxing agree. out the, the top of I the, agree. the top. Of the Do day. you want to go back to the NHL after we, the break? We, after the break, we can go back to the NHL, not least because there's a Game 7. There's a playoff Game 7 tonight, guy. That's, yeah. that's, that's appointment viewing. But we have to go to break at the moment. We are at the halfway point of our show. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning. That, of course, the intro music from College Game Day. Sports fans out there, especially college football fans, will recognize that song instantly. They might listen, sadly, forlornly listening to that in April because we are months from having heard it. We're months from hearing it again. But our next guest is the host of that show, and we are delighted to welcome to the show Reese Davis. Reese has taken over the host position a couple years ago after longtime host Chris Fowler rolled off and delightfully ESPN has decided to do a college game day program for the NFL draft. So Reese will be hosting the show um, today, no, tomorrow and Friday, tomorrow and Friday, he's hosting the college game day draft show on ESPN two. So you college fans who have been missing Reese and the crew can join him as you take in the NFL draft. Reese, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Are you already down in Dallas? I am. Yeah, I came down yesterday. We had a had an event for the college football playoffs, and that coincided nicely with covering the draft. So we're looking forward to it. I, I think that this is something that's been long overdue for the NFL draft because I think we can provide a little bit of a different perspective because not only have we covered these guys for the last three to four years, most all of them, uh, you know, in many cases, we've done stories on them, been able to spend time around them and have a, a pretty good insight, not only on what kind of player they are, 
but you know where they would fit, what kind of guy they are, stuff like that. And I think it for college fans particularly, it'll be a, it'll be a different twist on the draft. Yeah, it, it does feel like it's been something that's missing because you, you guys kind of you shepherd these people through their college career. These guys, we pay so much attention to them, and then they get just handed off to pros. And these guys, many of them don't know them. There's kind of a different crowd often that watches that. It's certainly a different crowd that covers it on TV. So it's going to be interesting to see you guys wade into this pool. Yeah, I, I think so, too. One of the things that uh, that I've laughed about for years, and I'm not going to call any names, but during, it's been several years ago, obviously, but uh, someone uh, on some draft coverage, not ours, but uh, <laughs> said said uh, Philip Rivers, they said, no one knows much about Philip Rivers. He played at NC State. And I'm sitting there watching, <laughs> what are you talking about? We've right. been talking about this guy since he's a freshman. You know? right. So I think that, that type of thing, because it's understandable because – People in the NFL tend to lock in on on their sport, and I'm not going to lie to you. I, I watch the NFL as a casual fan. Right. I'm not locked in every Sunday, but now college football, I'm locked in from the time that our show ends until the last Pac-12 game goes off at night. That's right. Just, you know, so I so I understand it, but I, that's why I think that that will be that will be a good resource for those people who, who might prefer college football or just want to hear our perspective on these players. Well, Reese, how, how do you avoid being a college football homer in this situation? Because it is a different game and it's taken, mm-hmm. it, it generally like it's a, it's a sign of maturation in a football fan. When you realize that your favorite college player doesn't necessarily translate into being a, 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 a professional football player. So for example, I mean, there's generations of quarterbacks at the university of Texas that were phenomenal this is my, mm-hmm. te- my, my team, Reese is Texas. And mm-hmm. How many conversations have I had with people like, no, Colt McCoy, in fact, isn't going to be a great NFL quarterback, and you just kind of have to accept that. How, do you, how are you going to walk that line? I, I think there's some basic prototypes that you sort of have to accept. Um, if, if a guy is undersized, for instance, uh, let's just take a quarterback position because that's the, thing, the main theme of this draft. If there's a guy that is undersized, and doesn't have elite arm strength, but it's been able to function in a spread offense with a lot of with a lot of quarterback runs and a lot of one read uh, run pass option types of things. And I know there's some of that coming to the NFL now, but it's not as prevalent because you can't do it. The defenses across the board are just uh, too big, strong, fast, and physical. But if there is a, a benchmark or several benchmarks that guys don't meet at that position, then you have to accept he might have just been a great college quarterback. But if there is an area in which maybe that player doesn't fit all the prototypes, but he has an exceptional skill set, I'm thinking of Russell Wilson, uh, who is very accurate and has, has a strong enough arm, and he's a guy that I think Baker Mayfield compares favorably to. Mm-hmm. Baker's a little undersized. He's not the fastest guy in the world, but he's got some escapability. And he's, got a, he's got a pretty strong arm, and he's extraordinarily accurate. So I think that he might offset some of those things. But generally speaking, uh, you have to accept that, you know, if there's an undersized linebacker that's making a bunch of tackles in the the uh, college game, that he would be an outlier and not the norm to step into the next level and continue to have that type but, of success. But you still, you still fall in love with those guys, right? You just, like, sure, you just named yeah. Zach Thomas, basically, right? And yeah. you, you loved him as right. a college player, and you, you, he didn't fit the prototype, so you might have been skeptical, but it was, it was impossible not to say, that guy's incredible. And then he goes out and does it in the NFL. So how do you know, how do you know when the prototype is, you know, can't be crossed and when they, they actually are the exception? I, I think you're playing the odds. I mean, basically, you're you're playing you're you're playing the odds, and then you're you're um, I guess 
mitigating that with your hunches. I mean, if you're a front office person, you know, mm-hmm. if you look at it and you see a Zach Thomas and you go, geez, he, you know, he's just not, he's not the right size. But I, wa- I turn on the tape and I watch him and he's, he's beating guys who are bigger and getting off blocks and he's making all the tackles and he's instinctive. And I got a hunch here, this is going to work. And, you know, you're not going to, I think the bottom line is you're not going to bat a thousand either way. Okay. Because so- there's no reason in the world. No physical reason in the world that Jeff George shouldn't have been the one of the right. top quarterbacks in NFL history. Instead, he was just good. He was a good quarterback, you know, but he wasn't. He, he wasn't that. How can you explain that? That guy could throw a ball like you know, like nobody else could. Right. And, and we've seen a lot. Jamarcus Russell is another one. I know he had some off the field issues, but everything that you would want, you know, it looked as if Jamarcus would have. And then you know, I, that's the other thing that you have to you have to watch for. You know, as a guy. Uh, you know, does a guy have some off the field issues that can right. keep him from reaching his potential? If if a, if an NFL team came to you and asked, okay, you've been watching a lot of football for the last few years, we, we're trying to get some insight into some hidden gems. Who would you point them to in this draft? Hidden gems, I would say. I like uh, the receiver from Memphis, Anthony Miller. Mm-hmm. I think he's. Uh, I mean, I, I'm assuming that you're talking about guys who who probably won't go the first round, or maybe yeah, at the, at the it's, end it's of kind the first of round. it's kind of this year's Zach Thomas, or you know, any, anybody who yeah. is more of a game player than a measurable guy, and you okay. know that because you've been paying so much attention in college football. Yeah, I, I think a guy who, who might have a chance to go in the first round though is a guy that I've seen a lot, and. Um, and that actually, I called this bowl game this year from Boise State is Leighton Vander Esch. He's a he's a linebacker. Uh, I don't know that a lot of people know about him, but I think he 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 is just a dude that he tackles everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he, he now look, he's a really good athlete too. But you know, he's been a little under the radar from playing at Boise State. And Boise's been good, uh, but not quite what they were when they were you know right on the cusp of, of getting into championship consideration a few years ago he's a really good player as i mentioned anthony miller the wide receiver from memphis i think is a is a really good player as well Mm -hmm. and uh and obviously a player that a lot of people have been talking about that won't go in the first round but you know i hope goes somewhere second third fourth round somewhere in there is shakeem griffin from ucf right uh you know the young man who who has one hand and has just played brilliantly and you know, went crazy at the combine around four three eight, and uh, and with his prosthetic, had had a goal of getting six reps on the bench press and got twenty. Incredible, you know I mean? just he, incredible. You know, he, it's it's an incredible story, and I, I actually ran into him at ESPN about a week or so ago, chatted with him briefly, and just a you know just a delightful dude. His brother's a, a terrific player for the Seahawks now, and uh, you know I think that uh, I think he's a guy that that uh, maybe people know the story a little bit, but might not realize. That dude is a really good football player. So he, he's a good uh, a guy that I think would be great on special teams and perhaps in the right defensive set might might work himself into a defensive role as well. We're talking to Reese Davis. Reese is, of course, the host of College Game Day on Saturdays. We've been a few months since we've heard him, and we'll be a few months yet, but you can watch him on their ESPN special around the draft. They're doing a College Game Day approach to the draft this year. They have shows both tomorrow and Friday, so we'll have a chance to see those guys. We've been missing them. Reese, are you tired of talking about the quarterbacks yet? You, you, can, you, you can be honest. Up. You can be honest. No, I, oh, a little, I <laughs> guess, but we were talking about this in some of the planning things ahead, and we said, you know, you always want to feel – as if you're the you know you're you're giving people something they've never heard before. Yeah, so good luck. Find this different, find this different angle, and not just talk about the quarterback, but you're you're ignoring the obvious that the most important position in all of sports is quarterback, and that's particularly true at the NFL level. 
and you have a, a big crop of guys with a wide variety of opinions on them, and it's going to shape the future for probably, what, a sixth of the league when right. those five guys go in the, you know, in the first round or right at it. Right, almost. right. So uh, you have to talk about it. And I do think it's really interesting because of the, the different things that you have in each quarterback. We mentioned Baker a little bit, who I don't know is maybe this is just a hunch. I would be, just to be totally blunt, I would be afraid to spend the number one overall on him mm-hmm. because of some of the measurables. Mm-hmm. But I would be delighted if I were Cleveland to take Saquon Barkley first and hope that Baker was still sitting there at four. Wow. You know? But but the Browns probably can't do that because they botched up their quarter. They you know they <laughs> right. you know they passed on Carson Wentz. They passed on Deshaun Watson. They probably can't. They probably need to take whoever that they have at the top. Mm-hmm. But you know people fall in love with Josh Allen. He's the prototype. I don't know that I see the productivity or the the consistency. If you get like everything you would want in a quarterback is with the possible exception of just straight foot foot speed is Josh uh, Josh Rosen. I should say. And yet there are concerns about him. Can you tell us a little uh, bit more Donald about, was, can you say Donald more about, Ro- Reese, I'm sorry, yeah. let me just jump in because no, no, I think of, of these guys, I, I feel, just personally, I feel pretty pretty clear on my position on all of them except Rosen. So I'm I'm short Allen, I'm long Darnold, I'm as confused as anybody about Mayfield. It wouldn't surprise me if he did fantastically and, and more power to him. Rosen, I don't have a strong position on. Everyone talks about what a pure passer he is. He is such a, he's kind of a low key guy though. And he said this thing, I think he said this thing out of coming out of high school where he's like, no, I have other interests. And I just don't think a quarterback, an NFL quarterback is well suited by having other interests in short. So what, what, how, what else can you tell us about Josh Rosen? I think, you know, he, he was a tennis player growing up. He is not, uh, I don't think he is as disliked by his teammates as has been portrayed. In fact, right. most of them like him. And there's some great stories about him when he was in high school uh, going out and raising money uh, for his teammates, but wanting to do it without without anyone knowing, so that they could accompany, so that the whole team could go on this trip, because there were, there, there were some guys who financially weren't able to do so. And he, he oh, he's done some very generous things like that. He's not a, I'm not he's not a bad dude, but he is. Uh, I think he is difficult to get to know. I think that he he challenges authority and sometimes not not a bad way, but questioning. He wants to know why, and I think sometimes that the perception of that from uh, the people on the receiving end is not always the best, that maybe they don't think the tone's the best. And I think there is a legitimate and fair question to be asked, and it's the main one. I have all that other stuff I can live with. I can even live with him having outside interests as long as he's putting in the work. That's fine. Probably, probably going to help clear his head. Here's what I wonder. Does he really lift his team and make everybody around him better? Mm, mm. The, the comparison, I don't know why I brought this guy up twice on your show, the comparison I worry about with Josh is Jeff George. Is it? Oh, Jeff, really? Is it Josh oh, wow. Rosen's going to be a good quarterback. He'll, Jeff George was good, mm-hmm. you know, but that he's not going to be great because he's not necessarily going to make everybody around him great. Right. And if there's a guy, if there are two guys in this draft that I think can do that at the quarterback position because of their uh, just their demeanor and the vibe they give off, it would be Baker first and then Sam Darnold. Yeah, for sure. 
for sure. I mean, again, being a Texas guy, we, we I saw way too much Baker Mayfield. And, yeah, you're and, ready for him. You're oh, ready for him to go Cleveland. Oh my goodness! You'd like for him to go to Cleveland. You think that's a <laughs> deserving punishment for, for having that's, to deal with him, right? You understand me completely, Reese. So, Reese. <laughs> so, Reese, this is Eric Brad. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, we're obviously both a sports show here, but of course, an analytics show as well. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us the role that analytics plays in the preparation that you guys do on College Game Day? Quite a bit more than you know. my preparation years and years ago. We've been able to have access to more and more information. For, for instance, uh, years gone by, you might look at a, a quarterback and say, you know, well, he's a 65% completion guy. But now due to the analytics, you can look at it and say, well, he is. But on passes that travel 10 yards in the air, he's a 40% guy, and that's not good. Uh, so you can take stats like that. You can build it into uh, measuring just how efficient offenses are. It's something that we look at every week in preparation when uh, you see how you know there are very complex formulas about not just gross yards put up by an offense, but how efficient they've been. Um, do they? How many? How often do they get? A successful number of yards on each down and distance situation. Uh, strength of schedule has evolved from being something more than just uh, your opponent's record and the record of your opponent's opponents. It's uh, you know now measured into how strong that team was when you played them. Uh, our football power in, index, Football Outsiders, has a has a, a great one. Uh, a guy named Bill Connolly does this great work with with a lot of analytics. We have Bill so on this show many many times. He's he's uh, he's a really smart dude. Now every every year in the off season, I look forward to reading uh, his previews that he does that are they're really in depth. Now the one thing you have to be careful of on my end of it, I think it's almost you have to pick and choose, and you have right. to pick pick a number or a stat or an analytic that makes sense and translates because. If you're just throwing, you know, a, a great number of numbers at people, such, such as you would read an article, I think that people can kind of glaze over and go, uh, "Yeah, just tell me when kickoff is." You know, <laughs> and uh, so you have to find the ones that are meaningful to that particular game. But it's something that we dive into much, much more, and as it becomes more advanced, um, I think that we use it to talk about how teams should be evaluated for the college football playoff, and I think it's. Uh, useful and I think it's good and I think it keeps us away from the old school thinking of well you know they didn't lose a game they have to be ranked in right. front of this team that lost two games and you know I, I don't believe that if we're when we have such a small group competing for the championship with just a 14 playoff which I'm in favor of at this point in time um, you know we we need to be able to evaluate better than just saying well they didn't lose or they only lost once and they lost twice so they can't go you know it's uh so i think the the analytics has helped that do you feel responsible for for kind of improving that dialogue and kind of bring along the audience because everyone out there doesn't agree with using fpi but you guys believe in fpi so you started talking about fpi do you do you take that on as one of your responsibility to kind of make, let's make the conversation more sophisticated let's make sure we are identifying the better team i, I think i I think it's important to do so, but I also think it's important not to treat it as if it's the be-all, end-all, and the absolute gospel. Yep. It's a tool. It's, it's something you use as part of your evaluation. It's, uh, it's some, look, if I, if I said to you, um, hey, look, you know, uh, Texas Tech is, is five spots higher in the FPI than Texas. You know, I'm, I'm giving the edge. You know, Texas Tech's better, and you, and you say, 
no, 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 I, I don't care where they're ranked in the FBI. I watch these teams play. I think the Longhorns are better. Then that's fine. You know, football judgment is still of the utmost importance in what we do. But I do think that it's really what the only thing that really bothers me about a negative reaction from the fans is that, you know, is if they think that somehow the this formula by these guys who are far smarter than I that that's been rigged somehow to favor one team right. or one conference or what it, it's you know it's something that they researched for a long time and went back and tested it against you know as much data as they could go back and get it was at least 10 years maybe 15 that they went back and ran these numbers and tested them to see if it if it seemed accurate if it was reliable and it, and it has proved to be so. It doesn't mean it's foolproof. It doesn't mean that there won't be occasional quirks in it here and there, just like with, with any uh, set of analytics in football, I think. But I think it's really useful. And I do think it's, I do take it as part of my responsibility to, to educate. And if people understand what the formula is, or, you know, not the intricacies, but understand the, the theory of it what it measures, how it measures, and why it does it, and they still don't like it, that's fine. I, I'm totally fine with that. You, I just don't want them to think, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's ESPN trying to, you know, trying to get Alabama or trying to get Ohio State back in. You know, it's, it's not right, that at right. all. And as long as they understand that, then they can think what they want of it, and I'm fine with it. Well, you've got a tough job because if you're taking on that – if you take on that – that that task of increasing improving the dialogue, then you you may or may not be proven right the next week. I, I remember a few years ago, when your predecessor was was in that slot, he decided one one year, like two thirds of the way through the season, we had all these undefeated teams, and everyone's you know how it goes. People start worrying. Oh my God, you know, there's only two teams that can make the title game back in the day, and everyone's <laughs> yeah. worried. How, what are we going to do when we end the season with six undefeated teams? And Fowler, he's like, oh, this isn't going to happen. The the guys with the numbers tell me odds are no way it happens, and. And fine, I appreciated the stance because that was definitely true. But the next week they're still undefeated, so he makes the yeah. same position on the on the show again. And then you know, two weeks later, three weeks later, he just shuts up because they're still undefeated, even though he was right the whole time. And we we love the position <laughs> he was taking, but it's hard to take those positions if you don't get a break and the, and the world kind of goes in your in your direction. But and, you know, the thing I think it's the great thing about being being a fan as opposed to what we do. And I mean, not that we aren't. We aren't fans of sport. We certainly are. But the fans' only responsibility is to look at it through a prism of how does this affect my team? You know, how, how does this discussion, these, this set of games, this result, these analytics, how does it affect my team? How Reset's very look at it. How does it affect, how does it affect the sport? How does it affect yeah. the playoff? How is it right? What do we agree with? What do we not agree with? That's what. That's why people fill the stadiums. That's why people, you know, that's why schools are putting sixty, seventy, eighty thousand yeah. people in the seats for a spring game because they care about their team, and that's great. That's what makes it great. So I think that you know some of it uh, you can push back on, and some of it, some of it you ought to uh, take a deep breath and appreciate a little bit because yeah. it's, it's part of the reason why people love it. Well, it's generous of you, and I, I, I suspect it goes back to to your upbringing. And I, I have to say, you. This is this is kind of a compliment. You don't come off as a typical Alabama fan. 
I'd be insulted because I've got a lot of I've got a lot of really good friends no. who might be who might uh, pride themselves on being typical Alabama. Fans. Well, maybe you guys I, all are non-typical Alabama fans. <laughs> Reese, I, I I read just last night this article that Stephen Godfrey did on you when you took over the position two years ago, and I learned in that article that you were from Alabama. And before I was thinking, you know, Reese never gives away his colors on the show, and what what I'm hearing from you is this great balance between trying to serve, you know, the broader population, the broader trends, how does this affect football, while respecting the undying loyalty, of course you mm-hmm. want that among individual fans. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important. And I there there are a couple of things about that. I think it's a little different for Kirk and Desmond and David because, you know, had I uh been good enough and A and then B uh had the knowledge to put in the effort, maybe I would have played, uh, you know, beyond high school, but I didn't. So people don't care where I went to school. But I do think that for for Kirk Herbstreet not to care about Ohio State or Desmond Howard not to care about Michigan or Pollock not to care about Georgia would be disingenuous. Now, there's a difference in caring and then, you know, breaking out your pom-pom every week because the fans don't want that either. But I right. do think that they want those guys particularly to care. And there's certainly a segment of the Alabama fan base that uh, that wants me to care more. A friend of mine called my attention to something on uh, online somewhere that said uh, during the season last year, and I took it as a compliment and also was bemused by it. It said uh, a guy had posted somewhere I don't even know where. Um, no person in media has done more to undermine Alabama's cause for making the college football playoff than Alabama alum Reese Davis. Oh, my and gosh. I, I was like, wait, wow. what? I, you know, did you realize I, you had such power? I did not realize that. If I, I just hope I always use my power for good instead of evil. But, uh, so, so, but you know, it, does, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about. For him, for whatever reason, I think, you know, I don't know. I was surprised. I thought Alabama was better than Ohio State last year, but I did not think uh, they would make it. I, probably, I thought they were better, therefore I thought they should, but I didn't think they would, and I, th- I assume that's what he was talking about. So, and, Reese, uh, yeah, so Reese, yeah. you mentioned that, uh, I think I'll use your exact words, that the quarterback in the NFL is the most important position. Um, mm-hmm. So there are four players that are not quarterbacks that um, are – at least this year, rated the top in their position. You know, Saquon Barkley, obviously running back. Jonathan Nelson, guard, so lineman, offensive lineman. Bradley Chubb, defensive lineman. Rokon Smith, linebacker. Do you feel that any of the four of them are so generationally good at their position that you could see one of them being taken before one of the top three or four quarterbacks? Because that's what it would take. It would take someone believing this is a once in a 10, 15, 20-year guy at their position instead of taking Rosen or Allen or Darnold or something like that. Barkley. Um, Now, I think all those guys you mentioned are good. Uh, but Barkley, to me, and, you know, we went through a phase in the NFL where running backs seemingly were devalued, but now we've seen uh, what Ezekiel Elliott has, has done for the Cowboys, Leonard Fournette, just in the you know last few drafts. I think Barkley can be that kind of guy. Uh, so he would be the one. The four guys that I think that if you are risk-aversive, you, you don't want to blow it on a quarterback, and you can be guaranteed that you're going to get an excellent return on your investment at the top of the draft, there are four guys that you can take and you won't have to worry, you know, barring injury. Saquon Barkley is one. Quentin Nelson, the guard from Notre Dame, is the other. Minka Fitzpatrick, the defensive back from Alabama, and Roquan Smith, the linebacker from Georgia. Those four guys, 
you can take them and you're good. Um, you know, you're now you may not get the you, I think you're going to get excellent uh, Pro Bowl level players. But, you know, the transcendent generation, generational quarterback or, or to use your term, the, the 10, 15 year type guy like Barkley, maybe you don't get that. But if you're risk aversive, those four guys are the sound investment to will not miss. And at least in my judgment. One of the things I've, I've actually have not heard you, I watch college game day all the time, I've not heard you talk about, I'd love to hear your opinion on, is if you were the GM of an NFL team, would you draft by pure talent level or position? Let me say why I ask that, because I'm a Buccaneers fan, and I won't go into the details of why, but I'm a Buccaneers fan in the NFL. They're strong <laughs> at linebacker. Let's imagine they believe that Roquan Smith is the best person available at number seven when they're picking. But everyone's saying they've got to take Minka Fitzpatrick or Derwin J. They just have have to what would you do like would you draft if you actually thought Roquan Smith was better despite the strength of the Bucks defense which is not that good as at linebacker would you take him anyway uh, th- then it would fall into contracts do, do you know do I think that he's better than who we have to move the contracts out how's all of that going to fit and that's that is outside of my sphere but generally speaking if I felt good about linebacker as you're as you're uh, proposing with the Buccaneers. If I felt good about linebacker, then I would lean toward drafting for need uh, if if it's close. Now, if I have them, if I have those guys rated, and I have Roquan Smith, you know, overall grade far and away above Mika Fitzpatrick or Derwin right. James, then then you have to take the better player. Mm-hmm. But if it's close, and I like my linebacking core, and I'm in a good contract situation, then I would lean toward drafting for need. Great, Reese, but we've only got a few minutes with you, and we don't want to miss the opportunity to ask you about the 2018 college football season. We're still a few months away, but we know you've been thinking about it. The the Some storylines are kind of perennial storylines. Your tide are always going to be around. Clemson apparently is always going to be around. Urban Meyer, Ohio State, always going to be around. Beyond those obvious ones, what do you think we'll be paying attention to next fall that we're not thinking about right now? Georgia uh, trying to break through again certainly will be a storyline, but I think the first weekend in Atlanta when Washington plays Auburn Mm -hmm. is going to be really huge for Washington, particularly in the Pac-12 in general. If Washington can go in there, and remember Chris Peterson, when he was at Boise State, went into uh, the city of Atlanta and beat Georgia, uh, you know, and really put them in good position back in the old BCS days to do the same thing with Washington if Washington were able to beat Auburn. I think that would be something, and Washington could be a team that would be uh, a big storyline team. Uh, Herbie and I called the Boise State game Vegas Bowl against Oregon last year at the end, and, and Vanderesh, is, as I mentioned earlier, is coming in the draft. But they've got a lot of guys coming back. Boise State could be that team, as it has been several times over the years, and as UCF was last year, right. that is outside the Power Five that gets some attention mm-hmm. and and I, i'm going i'm not saying this because you told me you were a texas guy um you <laughs> oh, know, please may, maybe texas because i think the big 12's a little uh i don't want to say down that probably would be unfair but with so much uh so many changes at quarterback sometimes that uh it's you've seen it in the sec right. outside right. of alabama all of the all the changes at quarterback has made the middle of that uh conference a little more uh, topsy-turvy and a little more vulnerable that might open the door for Texas. Mm-hmm. So I'll be, I would be very interested to see um, how, how Texas plays in the early part of the season. So those are, those are some of them. But the other ones you mentioned, um, you know, Penn State, I think, would, would be another team that, uh-huh. could, uh, that could challenge Ohio State. And then Michigan and Notre Dame earlier, the, win, the winner of that, just because of the magnitude of those, 
uh, programs and brand names. Whoever can win that game uh, in South Bend on the opening Saturday is certainly going to thrust itself into the limelight. So on Penn State, post Barkley, post Moorhead, you're not too worried. Well, that that'll be, but they, but it's not post McSorley yet. Right. And I think that will that'll be important as well. Um, they they are really talented. Franklin's done a really good job recruiting there, and uh, you know I think I, I certainly think Ohio State is the best team in the Big Ten. Right. Uh, you know Wisconsin will have something to say about that for sure, and, and I think Penn State and Michigan uh, perhaps will too. But I, I think Penn State will will contend as well. And Reese, just this is Eric Brad, though, just one last question for me. Um, you mentioned that you you are for the four team playoff. Um, just to be clear, despite what happened to UCF last year, which had there been an eight team playoff, they would at least have had a shot at the national title you still believe that a 14 playoff is the right number and that it should kind of it will continue for at least the next five seven years you don't see an expansion right not not in the next not in that time span it'll happen and it'll be right for the sport when it happens it and what i mean by that is the appetite much like when we got to four the appetite had become overwhelming for it and the sport was you know the bcs had, uh, I think, in some cases unfairly, but had lost a lot of credibility because of their um, constant changing of the formula to try to, you know, ward off problems that they didn't intend to, or didn't uh, foresee. There will come a time when we have to do it, but when we do go to eight, I hope we get rid of the conference championship games right. and play the first round on campus and that, that type of thing. I would be for that eventually. But the reason I like the 14 playoff right now is because we still have the greatest and most significant regular season in sports. Right. It's like a giant game of musical chairs. Right, right. And, and everybody, the music's going to start and stop at the most unexpected time. <laughs> and somebody is going to be bewildered to be left without a chair. Right. And, and, and there's the drama and the anticipation of that. You don't know if it's going to happen a, a Saturday in Auburn, Alabama, or in Eugene, Oregon. But something weird is going to happen somewhere, and the music's going to start and, and, or stop, and people are going to have to sit down, and somebody's going to be left out and hoping that, that they get another shot. And that type of drama no other sport has in the regular season. I think that if we did away with the conference championship games in five, seven, eight years and found a way to replace that money, which will, that will drive the boat, whether they are able to do this. Well, then that, maybe you can expand it to eight without losing that. But if you still have the conference championship games and you push it to eight, and I think then you are starting to risk uh, perhaps uh, you know perhaps diminishing the regular season. You don't want to do that. Couldn't agree with you more. Maybe that's a place for you to use all that power, Reese. You can exercise right. some influence. <laughs> when, when I am czar, right? When, when you are czar. Reese, we'll let you go. Very much appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, guys. It was fun. You bet. Thanks you bring a, Take care. bring a lot of joy to the world. Appreciate you taking the time to visit with us. You're going to be t- covering, uh, Reese Davis will be covering the college the draft, the NFL draft for college game day. ESPN is going to do an ESPN2 special both Thursday and Friday covering the NFL draft for the first time. Reese will be hosting that. You can catch him in the fall hosting college game day. That is three quarters of our show. We've still got a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Rolling into the fourth and final quarter, Daniel Bruno bringing us up out of bottom of the hour. Our sound engineer, critical team player here, Daniel Bruno, bringing us into the last quarter. You can join the conversation. We're having one here. We've been here for a while. Shane, Adi, Eric, Cade, all of us are here. Jump in here. Give us a question. one 844 Wharton 
That's 1-844-942-7866. Also email us. Email us businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. It's an especially good time to, good way to reach us if you're listening one of the times we're replayed. But you can email live. Matt will pick up your email live. We've responded to emails live on the show if you'd rather do that. You can also tweet at us at WMoneyBall. Our Twitter handle, at WMoneyBall. We follow our guests. We tweet about sports analytics. You can throw us questions. We take questions off of our account. We take over-unders off of our account. We're rolling into the over-under segment here in a little bit. Just off the phone with Reese Davis. That was a lot of fun, fellas, I have to say. I mean, that's, you know, I, I may get to be I'm a little fanny as, as one of my colleagues. is Just a little bit of a fan on the college football side. Dial that back, perhaps. But how I got a chance to talk to Reese Davis. Got college football no, conversation in exciting. April. You did love it. I, and I mean, honestly, I just despite the fact that it hasn't been out of our lives that much, I'm looking forward to call football coming back. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually looking forward to the perspective of um, the college game day crew and their evaluation of players versus, yeah. let's say, the you know you know you can turn on and Mel Kiper is going to be there. On by the way, I think uh, Reese Davis and them are in ESPN too. I think the standard ESPN will, of course, be the Mel Kuyper, McShay type one. Of course, going to the NFL Network, you can see Mike Mayock okay, do here's, that. Here's a question for you: If you're gonna, if you you have to build an algorithm, you can't make exceptions. You just they're gonna give you picks, and you have to decide what weight to put from each of two sources. Okay. The NFL crew on ESPN, Kuyper et al. We're gonna aggregate their opinions somehow, and then the NFL, the College Game Day crew on ESPN too. We're gonna aggregate their opinions somehow. And you get to weigh each of them. What weight are you going to put on each? I would put more weight. I mean, first of all, I'd, you could run a model and decide what yeah. those weights are. But let's say I, I didn't do I so could do that. On, speculate on what you think the weights I would, would be. I would put more weight on the NFL group because I think what they've – it's not because they have more knowledge of the players in college. What Mel Kuyper has been doing – for 40 years now. This is his, his entire endeavor. His entire endeavor is to build kind of, well, I'll say this generally, build predictive models of how performance in college translates to the NFL. That's not what the college game day crew is doing when they're evaluating players normally, and I'm glad they've gone into that. So I would put more weight on the Kuyper, McShay, Mike Mayock group I think than I right. would on the other, I, for I, that reason. I worry that this is going to be like a little info, a little entertainment-oriented, a little bit, let's feed some well, comfort food to the college football fan. I, I also hope think it's not it may, that. It really well, right, and I mean, the NFL crew to a certain extent, I mean, we talked about how, like, you know, a lot, I mean, at, we, we alluded to this earlier in the program that, you know, no matter what the pick is, they're going to talk up the pick like it's a sure thing pro bowler, right? I mean, because there's be, there, there's some hype. Great, com- wouldn't it be great if the college game big crowd would say, oh, no, not oh, that guy. Ooh, <laughs> ooh. Yeah, yeah. No, they just have we, like the we, sad we, trombone sa- sound on the air or something like that. It would be amazing. <laughs> I sat with it. There we go. Um, but So it'll be interesting to watch, but it is, it's theoretically complimentary in that they will miss some things that mm-hmm. the college game yep. day crowd will have. But yep. at the same time, college game day crowd will probably weigh some things that shouldn't weigh as much. You know what would be translate. fascinating? If someday when somebody went onto the air, if it got to the point where there was almost like they talked about the uncertainty that was there. Like, for example. No one know, likes uncertainty but statisticians. This is the problem. And that's the problem yeah. is, is that yeah. these guys don't no. speak our language. We and, speak I the mean, language it's, it's of not conducive. And expectation. To, it's not conducive to hyping up a fan base. We need to figure that's out. Right, how, but that's not our job. We, to hype no, up well, I, I'm not yeah. saying it's our job. I'm saying there's a reason that these. 
people on TV. It is our job don't to talk about it. uncertainty in a more compelling way because yeah. no I one agree wants with to you. hear it. There's nothing more important, and no one yeah. wants to hear it. So that's a challenge. Yeah. So all I was commenting on is I'd love to see the day whether um, whether it's our responsibility or not. I agree with you. It probably is not. But how can I will be excited on the day when they say, "Wow, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are picking Minka Fitzpatrick." Even if we condition on a being a uh, a cornerback or safety. There are eight other guys they could have taken. Our belief is this X, yeah. Y, and Z. And, you know, I oh just would, God. you know what? Amazing. It would be, it would be amazing. Re- it, would it would be, be amazing. amazing. Nobody would watch it, but it would be amazing. It would, it be, would amazing. be amazing. Well, well, maybe we could get on C-SPAN. <laughs> yes. Maybe C-SPAN. We would, we, do we'd C-SPAN. be the C-SPAN draft coverage. Or maybe, why can't we, maybe we should do it here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School one year. Maybe we should have just a statistical like live, look live at the draft. draft. Live show. That just, would be phenomenal. The, the, we'll do, we'll uh, be the, the uncertainty, guys, and we'll see. We actually have to here. do a lot of work, guys. No, no, put together no. no. Can we get data. like a wet bar in the studio <laughs> here or something? I can think. They, they, they turn to me and I say, oh, I don't know. Huh? Which of these two players should they take? Um, I, don't I don't know. know. Too much uncertainty. It's too much uncertainty. It's a coin toss. Nobody likes a coin toss. Exactly. It's boring. Well, to figure out, how to, I mean, it's critical. And so how to do that in a more compelling way is, a, is an interesting challenge. Let's run through some other sports. Can we go to baseball? And d- ideally, Did baseball. Did something happen in baseball last night? Well, what happened was is that Eric and I were on the radio, and the Yankees were getting destroyed, and the Red Sox were winning every game. That was last week. That was last week. And it actually seemed to continue into the beginning of the week. But it's been a dramatic turnaround with the Yankees winning four in a row, and the Red yeah. Sox yeah, getting just no as an, uh, Just as an exciting update, the Yankees <laughs> have won a couple games. Yeah, they have. <laughs> and the Red Sox have managed to lose the three Reds, in a row. I, I heard that they were the they are the best team to start to, to have ever at this point no 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 I heard that they're the best team to be no hit yes, yes. With some, after some minimum number of games but it's not that surprising considering that no hit, hitters don't after come along that, that that don't come yeah. along that frequently and they, their, their start is incredible so no but I think it's a really nice way to think about right. the quality of the no hitter because no hitters must Disproportionately happen against but it bad does, teams. It does. It. I'm not really sh- actually sure because to. It, you would you would argue that it, it probably does disproportionately. But this year I, has, I, I seen, think... has seen has seen a amazing swing. What you're seeing right now, and this is what baseball seems to be evolving into. Extreme performances seem to be yes. on both sides dominating. Great, great, great pitching and great, great, great hitting and lots and why and would that be? I don't know. I mean, you're seeing. So I doubt it, right? Well, um, it looks that way, but no specific, numbers of home runs. Specific to the no hitters, I think. I think the the sort of stochastic, the randomness of what comes together to make a no hitter completely dominates the quality of the team that is no hit. Like you I think, think I think, yeah. I think the actual yes. quality, how good the team that is no hit is at hitting, is is a very small part of what goes into a no hitter. I'd like hitter. to know the answer to that question. So I mean, I mean, it, this is something obviously that could be empirically checked. I mean, you well, just been three thousand of them. We have a right. decent sample of. But if you just look at the pitching performances, I mean, obviously there's enormous numbers of pitchers who pitch just terribly. But if you go through the top thirty pitchers starting pitchers this year you got to find you, you find Clayton Kershaw he's having a perfectly fine start ERA in the in the low to mid twos lots and lots of strikeouts yet he's probably the 40th best pitcher right now it just incredible pitching performances incredible hitting performances and then of course lots of crap in the middle so what caught my eye um this year in baseball besides yes the Yankees and the Red Sox issue did catch my eye but I got I got another one for you there's a team that was predicted to win their division that in the loss column is currently eight games back, 
And I started to wonder, at what point do you start, just does the math not work in your favor? So I'll tell you who the teams are. The Dodgers, so the, I would guess. It's right? not the Dodgers. Nationals. The Nationals yep. are 10 and 14. The Mets are 15 and 6. Yep. So they're eight games back in the lost column. Now, if you just do the simple math, let's pretend that the Mets only play 500 ball the rest of the season. We might argue they're better than that, given we have some data now. They're 15 and 6. But let's just say they play 500 the rest of the season. That will get them to 86 wins. For the Nationals to pass them, the Nationals would need to go 77 and 61, which is at a 91 win clip now. But they're 10 and 14. So at some point in the season, I know we're early, but they have to play 91 win baseball, 570 baseball, to catch the Mets who are playing 500. If we go another 15 games into the season and their win percentages are the same, they now would have to play almost 600 baseball. Eventually, yeah. the math, even though they say, well, yeah, baseball's a long just, season, it's 162 not, games. We're not at the point yet. We're not at but the I'm point tell yet you, because that's exactly what we predict they'd do coming into the season. We predicted that the Nationals were about a 91-win team and the Mets were about a 500-win team. So, so all they have to do from this point forward, is play to their expectations. And, That's a great point, because that know. was both of their priors yeah. coming into the season. I'm saying, if those priors don't hold, like if, right. if we now have some updating, if the Mets are 15-6, and six, maybe they're better. Yeah. Like if, By the way, if the Mets were just a 520 team, not 500, but 520, yeah. it's an extra three wins, for example, all of a sudden now, the Nationals almost need to play 600 ball right now yeah. to be able to catch the yeah. Mets. And that's the thing. When you take a small change in probability and you multiply it by 150 games, you know you could get three extra wins for the Mets, which puts them at 89 wins. Now for the Nationals to get to 90 wins, they got to play 600 ball the rest of the way. But all of this is dominated by variance. There's so much variance to remaining. So, so I shouldn't believe in the Phillies yet? Uh, no, don't believe in the Phillies yet. They are doing significantly they are doing better wonderfully. than expected. But the, right? the, oh, one yes. good thing, the one good thing, this is the good thing, whether you're a purist in baseball or not, just because of their 14-8 and eight start, at least we'll still be talking about the Phillies probably in June or July right yep. now, where mm-hmm. if, they were, if it was only for the division, you're like, what's the chances the Phillies really are going to hold on and end up out of the Mets and the National? Yep. Maybe not. But at least now, because of the wild card, at least the Phillies could be relevant, maybe even into yeah. August. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think they're going to be a playoff-relevant team, but they're not a terrible team, and that's something we can say for the first time in a few years. So the way to look at it, actually, is to compare the, the early season performance versus their prior, and, and the teams that are furthest from their priors are going to be shrunk back hardest. So to take it for example, the Red Sox, we expected the Red Sox to be very good. They're playing ridiculously good, so you've got to move them back. But I think that's a, a, the most legitimate start that we can we can re- actually put some money on and say, you know, the Red Sox are probably better than we got thought. It. And got we'll, it. We'll, but the Phillies, and, and I think the Nationals are not nearly as bad <laughs> yeah, as they're the doing. Dodger, I would almost say and the, the Dodgers, Dodgers and well. Nationals, like, almost will, will get pulled back. Almost as much right. as the Red Bulls, but I think the Mets down. and the Phillies are going to are going to fall back to earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about on the basketball front, guys? We of course were excited to see the Sixers clinch last night. There's still a lot of series playing out there, like a lot of two and two series in particular. Well, let's not talk about these two and two series. Let's talk about this game seven. That's happening in hockey. Toronto, Boston. Not just, yeah, it's not been just a series. Series. Wait, tell us, is this a, what round is this? In the, first, first round. First, first, same first round. Same as basketball. And where are these two players? Two teams. Are they, are they uh, terrific teams? One teams? plays in Toronto, one plays in Boston. I understand no, they that. They are very good teams. It's awesome. <laughs> well, actually, so I look. No, no, good yeah. this, 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 It's a great question, Adi. How yeah. good are they? Because yeah. the, the NHL playoffs are divisional-based. They yeah. They're not seated across a conference. And so it turns out that they're top six teams in the NHL. There's 16 teams in the playoffs. 
these are in the first round numbers three and six according yeah. to I think the regular season record. Yeah, yeah, I was just looking at the number. I mean, Boston ended up the season with 112 points, Toronto 105, both pretty good numbers, yeah. and they're right, basically third and sixth. And so it's you know game seven. I mean, how much how much do you think Boston's odds just having home ice? Worth anything? Not much. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, 55 to 45 or something like that. Maybe 60 to 40, game, but not game much. Game 7 playoff hockey is a... Playoff play, hockey is a, in general is, is amazing because they just play until there's a winner. I mean, I, I just, I'd love... Playoff hockey is very different than regular season hockey. I, I mean, I just hate ties, basically. There, there needs to be and an app that'll text you if a playoff game goes into overtime. overtime. That actually would be a good idea. I mean, there's there's little in live sports. Or even, like, you know, into, like, the last 10 period. minutes yeah. with, like, one goal advantage or yeah. something like that. Because the, the game just gets absolutely frenetic. You know, I would love to see the motion tracking numbers. As we go from regular season to playoffs, and then as we go from first period to third, yeah. and as you go to first game oh, of the series goodness, to seven. It's amazing. And then you get some of these situations, it's like game seven, overtime, and it just doesn't get better. You should yeah. really drop what you're doing and go watch the yeah, hockey. exactly. Um, what else before we roll into the home stretch here? Anything else jumping out to you? we got the Kentucky Derby next weekend. I assume we'll be talking about it on the show next week. It's always a good sign. A sign of spring. Maybe yeah. that means warm weather yeah. is near. Seven, poor, poor seven degrees Gronk, average. The, the horse, Gronk's horse. Baseball games have been seven degrees colder than average this year. I, I saw that. I saw that. All these cancellations. That's, and maybe that's behind the New the York extremeness. Yeah. Slow, slow start. All right, guys. As we turn into the home stretch, we have a regular feature. It's Warden Moneyballs over under. Eric Rattler, what do you got today? Well, we got some really interesting ones. We might as well start out with one that we've been talking about throughout the show, which is uh, we'll do our over-unders. Well, I'll start with Adi on this one, but then we'll rotate around. Um, 3.5 quarterbacks in the first five picks of the NFL draft. So that would require, well, first of all, all of Rosen, Allen, and Darnold going in the top five. And it would require, if you'd like, Baker Mayfield sneaking into the top five for our listeners out there. So, Adi, over-under. is a, is a repeat, uh, and I'm not sure whether or not I, what I said the last time. So in the aim of consistency, I'm going to go under. Okay. Only because, I don't know, it just seems like an enormous, historically, uh, would be an unprecedented move for four out of five. Shane Jensen. I'm going to go over. I think uh, all the unique teams in the top four uh, will take a quarterback. So that's, uh, I guess, Giants. So it's only three. There are only three unique teams oh, top in the five. top four, unless someone top trades in. Five, sorry. Four, four unique teams in the top five. Right. Right. We're, yeah. We're, yeah. We're four four unique teams in the top five, they all take a quarterback. Not even Cleveland yeah. will take two quarterbacks. Yeah. So I'm going to go over as well. I'm not, you know. I, I over meaning of, you think? I'm going to go over as well because I think someone's going to okay. trade in. I think the hunt for quarterbacks is so... Um, you know, worked up. People are so worked up about so this. You think Cleveland's number, four, you think Cleveland number four trades out? But we got we have four, we have five picks now. Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, I'm just asking. Just, who do you think will trade out? Traded, I would guess, right? I don't know. Um, okay, the, it yeah. could be the fifth pick. I don't think. Yeah. The, or, or what if the Jets, as Eric posited, maybe they want either Darnold or 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 Allen? Yep. If those are their two guys, and they're ta- and they're taking the first two rounds, first two picks, then maybe the Jets, Jets are going out. with Rosen. But everybody gonna, knows that they're going to see offers. The thing is, even I know that they're going to see <laughs> offers, and um, I'm just going to go with four QBs in the first five. Right. Okay, and I'm going to go under. I think it will be three, but I don't think it will be. I think uh, Saquon Barkley will be taken in the top five, and I think Bradley Chubb will be prudent, taken in the, the top prudent, five. That's the prudent side. It's just the, no, the but boring. It, but, well, uh, I'm doing my best here. I'm doing my best with our over-under segment. All right, listen, since we're on the NFL, let's stick with another one. So the following quarterbacks have been taken 
uh, in the top five since 2012. Let's eliminate just Goff and Wentz for just a second. So let's look at Mitch Trubisky, Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota, Blake Bortles, Andrew Luck, and RG3. If you're assuming you want to count him as an NFL quarterback, I guess he's a backup right now. Do you think we'll get more than one and a half Super Bowl wins from that totality together? So that means how many Super Bowl wins in their careers in total? Because we talk about the uncertainty. These were all top five quarterbacks. Trubisky, Winston, Mariota, Bortles, Luck, and RG3. If we total sum the number of Super Bowl wins in their career, will it be greater than one and a half? It's a great question. Shane, let's start with you. You get Trubisky, Winston, Mariota, Bortles, Luck, and RG3. Over, under, one and a half total Super Bowl I'm going to take under. I think it's going to be one. I think your Bucks under Winston are going to get one Super Bowl. Okay. And that's it. <laughs> that's all they're allowed. That's all they're allowed. <laughs> that's it. In between Patriots Super Bowls. I'm going to scratch Bortles and RG3. Yeah. Yep. And that leaves us three guys? Well, four. Well, Trubisky, four Luck. Winston, Mariota, and Luck, if, okay. depending on injuries. You but might yeah. want to scratch him It's such off, a great too. question. It is. such a great question. It also points out how much serial correlation there is in in teams like a, one team will have a really good quarterback and a good coach and they'll win you know two out of six or whatever yeah and they kind of hog the super bowls you don't oh see yeah the, no i mean i mean the, the super bits. the super bowl kind of you know is not spread very it's much among teams out. it's I mean, basically answer? there's been a team there's been a dynasty per decade Right, maybe and, the, maybe and the, the same dynasty, dynasty for the last maybe, two decades. Come on, guys, you're hashing maybe, this out too deeply. What's your answer? We're not hashing it out too deeply. <laughs> this is the this is how deep you have to go to answer this. Maybe the dynasty era is ending, and it's about to get spread out. And the random Mitch Trubisky's and Mariota's. Then it doesn't do good because the percentage going, is too small. I'm going over just to take the more interesting side. The odds have to Hottie be Weiner. I'm gonna I'm gonna argue the dynasty is ending, and I'm going under <laughs> oh, okay. because they're just three or four guys out of thirty. Yeah. Okay, and I'm going reasonable. And I'm going to go over, but only because because you're a Buccaneers guy. No, that's not the reason. I was going to say that. I was going to say because I think when the goat retires, I think we're not going to have a situation where essentially seventy percent of the time the team from the AFC is one team going to the Super Bowl. Someone has to win the Super Bowl, and so I think we're going to get a spreading, and each of these guys will have ten to twelve opportunities. So I'm I'm going over. All right, let's go to the next one. Let's go to uh, let's go to the NBA, and let's say um, let's take the Cavs Pacer series. This is an interesting one. Actually, I'm not, I'm going to even a so the question here is, will this go to Game 7? Two and a half games left in the Cavs-Pacers series. Just to remind you, loss-win-loss-win loss, win is the way the series is going from the Cavs' point of view. Does this go to a Game 7, or is this now LeBron is going to say, look, I got two games to end this. This is what's going to happen. I'll go to Cade Massey first. I Does don't that have a series go that. to Game 7? I don't have a position. I haven't been watching it. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. Game 7. LeBron's got to conserve a little bit. He can't just go all out yet. Well, that's an interesting question, actually. Does he conserve thinking, look, I know if it goes to Game 7, we're going to win it, but if I have to put in this massive energy to drop 50 each of these two games, we win this series, but I'm going to lose the next series. That's another interesting point. Adi, does it go to I'm Game going seven? 7? Going 7. No, he finishes it off the next two. He's, he he t- it takes him a couple series for him to calibrate and figure out how to beat them, and then he just beats them. That's that's what he does every playoff series. Wow. All right, and one wow. last one for the NBA. Combined seeds of teams in the NBA Finals. Over under this three is a and a half. Weekly question. Yep. Oh, the numbers. Well, numbers three and a half. Yeah. Okay. So, for example, if the Sixers made it, you would have to go over because there are three and they have to play somebody. So that means the sum would be minimum of four. Over under three and a half. The combined seeds in the over. NBA Finals. Easy one. Over because it's going to be the Cavs or the Sixers. 
The Cavs are what three, four, four seeds. So yeah, that would take it over. Yeah. So you have no so, belief. Yeah, I'm going. Guaranteed. And I think we're all I'm going over too. There we go. There's our <laughs> over under. It's a lock. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that has been another two hours with Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning, eight to ten Eastern. Whole crew in here today. Thanks from that crew to you for listening, Eric, Adi, Shane, Cade. Thank you to our boss man, producer Maddie Datz. Thank you to Daniel Bruno, Dion Simpkins, somewhere back in the room eating bonbons. He's supporting us though. You guys come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.